Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on care delivery. Hello, I'm Charles von Gunten. We're going to talk about the role of consultation etiquette in working with referring clinicians. The main message I want you to get from this talk is this. Consultation etiquette guarantees fruitful relationships with referring colleagues. You want to be successful in helping with palliative care in the hospital or healthcare setting where you work. Mastering consultation etiquette will guarantee that you will have a successful service being able to get to the patients who need your help. These are the learning objectives for this session. I want you to be able to identify the five rules of consultation etiquette. I want you to be able to explore the consequences of two common breaches of consultation etiquette. And I want you to be able to describe the impact of two common clinician personality styles. Now imagine this. You have a new consult. You know it's on the fourth floor, bed 410B. The name? Dorothy Cranston, a 74-year-old female. The reason for the consultation? Pain. And the referring physician, Dr. Boggs. Now imagine for a minute, it's probably not you, but can you imagine that some clinicians might be so eager to rush off to vanquish Mrs. Cranston's pain, to reform the misguided and wrong-headed pain management that is likely going on, to illuminate the aspects of total pain, physical, emotional, practical, spiritual, with which Ms. Cranston is likely suffering, and teach those doctors and nurses how to really care for Ms. Cranston. Does that ring a bell at all? Does that strike you as there might be some unintended consequences from behaving that way? I can tell you that my helping many, many teams across the country in working to develop their palliative care programs make this mistake. So what are the consequences then? When you heard that, were you ever so slightly irritated if you thought about what the referring physician might be thinking? Can you imagine that a referring physician might say, I'll never consult palliative care again? And he might tell his friends, do you know what palliative care did? Or nursing might block further consultations. Oh, you don't want them. Why is that? How could such earnest desire to help lead these unintended consequences to interfere with the success of your service? It's because they didn't follow the rules of consultation etiquette. So what is etiquette? It's one of those words now that tends to have a rather bad connotation. Uh, people think about stuffy old rules of behavior. But think about it. 
Rules of behavior help people work together, particularly if they don't know each other well. They can be breached, but the key is to know the rules, and then experienced people will know when they can be broken. The rules are especially useful for when you don't know what to do, when you are new to a particular service or a particular part of the hospital, or working with physicians and other clinicians that you don't know. It prevents you from avoiding gaffes, and it prevents others from feeling uncomfortable as well. The major objection I hear when I talk about etiquette is, oh, I don't need rules. I just do what feels right at the moment. Do you identify with that? For most people, the rules of etiquette are something that they learn early on in childhood. Many people building palliative care programs simply haven't been exposed to the rules which are unwritten by and large. And yet I guarantee you that when mastered will assure your uptake in the hospital or health system where you're working. This is extraordinarily important. You are a consultant to the managing service. The reason for the request is because the patient and family may need your care. But your responsibility, your primary responsibility is to your customer, the managing service. If they don't want you, you won't have a chance to improve the patient and family care. Let me use an example. Imagine that you are needing new carpet where you live. You like beige. You have asked the carpet company to come to give you beige carpeting. Beige pile plush carpeting. You talk with them, you agree with them, you agree to a price, and you leave confident that they are going to put in beige carpet where you live. You come back after the job is done. The carpet isn't beige. It's pink. Shocking, vivid, Pepto-Bismol pink. And not only is the carpet pink, but the walls are now pink. Your furniture has been covered in new pink upholstery. Everything is pink. Did I stimulate a little bit of irritation in you? Could you imagine the sense of outrage? It's your home and someone else did something you didn't want. That's the feeling of a managing service where a consultation service doesn't follow etiquette and does what they think is right rather than paying attention to who owns the patient and the family, which is the managing service. So the rules, then, of consultation etiquette. Rule number one, you need to be accessible. They need to know how to reach you. In your hospital, it might be email, or by paging, or by entering the order in a 
electronic medical record, or someone may make a telephone call like the ward clerk. They need to know the names of the people on your service. And if you have a secretary or a clerk responding, they need to know that this is urgent, that the phone needs to be picked up. This can't wait. Another important thing is you need to be able to expect calls in the afternoon. In most places, in most hospitals, managing services make rounds in the morning. The consult is given late in the morning or early afternoon, and you will get the consultation at 2 or 3 or 4 in the afternoon. The second rule is be responsive. You need to acknowledge the receipt of the request within a few hours. It will irritate managing services if you don't respond until you have time the next day or the day after that. You need to be able to see the patient and offer the initial advice on the same day. Now you may say, oh, but we're very, very busy. This is such an important part of etiquette. You may not be able to do the entire consultation, but at the minimum, you need to get back to the referring service saying, got the referral, get some sense of what they need. If there's something urgent, make sure you do it that day. But many will say, oh, you can do that tomorrow. We just wanted you to know that checking in, they need to know that you have the ball. So as a general rule, you must respond within 24 hours, never longer than that. And you and your team are going to have to decide what you will do about the 4 o'clock consultation on Friday afternoon. I assure you, everywhere in the world, it is routine for an important consultation to palliative care to come at 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon. And how you handle that will have an influence on the degree to which you are embraced by your hospital or health system. Rule number three, call the referring service. You need to call the person that put in the consultation and find out about the case to find out what they really need. The real story is always different than what is written or transmitted. You can count on that. Your job is to be quiet and to listen, using the same skills you use when you are interviewing a patient or a family. The importance of this is not just to find out about the case. Consultation is how physicians get emotional support. Think about it. Physicians never emote describing how emotionally difficult a case is. They will describe the case and in doing that, they will describe what is difficult about it. Your ability to respond to that implicit emotional message will also be key to your being a successful consult service. Here's a key phrase I want you to memorize. In response to a someone on a referring service telling you about a new consult, your reply is, this sounds like a very challenging case. Now it may be that for you, this is ordinary. This is garden variety, routine palliative care. 
But to the referring physician, this is challenging enough that she or he needs your help. Hearing from you, this sounds like a very challenging case, is a way that justifies and helps reassure them that they're not giving you a stupid case or that you're not judging them for not being smart enough or skilled enough to do it themselves. When you're talking with them, after you've heard them describe it, clarify the request. What questions does the managing service have? You can use the phrase, what are you hoping for? as a way to expand the person who's telling you about the case to tell you what's troubling them or what they wishing would happen with the patient or the family or decision making. With what do they need help? Is it just pain management? Is it a conversation? Are they hoping to move the patient and family in their ability to understand or think about the future? Just as important, you want to find out if there's anything that is off limits. The classic in American hospitals is, we want palliative care to see the cancer patient, but no talk of do not resuscitate, no talk of stopping chemotherapy. You are there to manage the symptoms. The worst etiquette faux pas, just like with the example of the carpet, is when you've been consulted for pain management and you get in there and the patient and the family seem to want to talk about chemotherapy, whether it's useful, whether it should be stopped, they want to know if they're dying. Since your primary responsibility is to the managing service, your response to that is, I'll need to let your doctor know that this is important to you and I'll get back to you with how he wants to handle or how she wants to handle those questions. The worst thing you can do is to say, oh, well, they wanted to go there and go merrily on down a path without including the managing service in their participation. In the same way that you, wanting beige carpet, and expecting beige carpet would have wanted to be phoned by that person that thought you really needed pink carpet, pink walls, and pink upholstery. If there was a negotiation and you agreed, that's fine, but if you said absolutely not, it's beige, you would expect that in the same way with clarifying ahead of time what the question is and what's out of bounds. You can always come back to say, Gee, the family wants to talk about other things. How do you want to handle this? But that kind of a negotiation shows respect. You also want to clarify whether this is a request for co-management. The oncologist will do the chemotherapy, you'll do the pain management. Or are they asking for you to actually assume care because the patient has moved to a different place and they really want you to take over for the rest of the place. And finally, do they want you to have a goals of care talk, a big conversation that includes all of the medical treatment, including prognostication and planning for the future? Do this before you get to seeing the patient. Now you get to see the patient. 
These are critical steps before you actually see the patient. You begin by talking to the nursing staff and other staff that have been involved in the case. Knowing the bigger picture, not just what's written in the medical record, will help you be superb. You'll want to look at the results of diagnostic tests. Then you'll want to interview the patient and the family. You'll want to examine the patient. And you may be offering information and counseling and care management as long as it's inside the bounds of the place that you negotiated when you talked to the managing service. This brings me then to rule four. After you have seen the patient, but before you write anything in the medical record, call the referring service back. Tell them what you found. Tell them what you think. Tell them what you recommend. You will get a quick back and forth with whether they find that acceptable, whether they accept your recommendations, what they want you to do. It's also the time to commiserate. Remember, I said this is how physicians and managing services get their emotional support, by talking about the case. For you to be able to listen and demonstrate the same skills that you have with patients and their families will make you embraced by the medical staff and the larger healthcare staff of where you work. You'll want to negotiate then what is acceptable. You may want to start morphine, but they feel only comfortable with acetaminophen or an NSAID. Find that out before you write it in the medical record. Establish the roles and the follow-up responsibilities and then write the note. One of the slang terms in the US is chart wars. Have you ever seen this? Someone writes in the, in the medical record, I think this person needs morphine. The managing service comes and says, we'll continue ibuprofen. The next note says, morphine is essential. This patient is suffering terribly and morphine should be written. The following note says, continue ibuprofen. Palliative care no longer to see this patient. You get what I mean? You want to avoid this kind of back and forth in the chart. Talk to them, work it out verbally, and then record what you've decided in your note in the medical record. So now you can write the note. The main thing about the note that you want to communicate with other people taking care of this patient about what you found and what the plan is. So there is no need to copy what is elsewhere in the medical record. You do not need to repeat the history, to repeat the physical examination, to repeat the summary of all of the tests that have gone on since the beginning of this patient's illness. That's for when you're a medical student, or a resident, or a nursing student. Once you are an attending physician, once you are managing the patient, once you are a consultant, you need only to summarize the pertinent. I remember when I first started in this field as a consultant, I looked in the hospital at who had the most impact, who had the most power, who was the most respected, and it was in inverse proportion to the size of the note. 
You want to make your impression clear, what you think is going on, synthesizing the case, and you want to make your suggestions clear. Make that bold, make that bullet points, make it easy for someone in the chart to find your impression and your suggestions. And I encourage you to include the dimensions which generally are not in physician notes. The emotional, the practical, the spiritual, which may be the core reasons that you're asked, even though the reason for the case, the reason for the consultation, was pain. We've discussed the five rules of consultation etiquette. Now I want to show you how to put those five rules to work. It's frequently easier to see how to do something when you've seen someone else do it. Hello, Dr. Morrison. I'm Charles Von Gunten with Palliative Care. You asked us to see your patient, Ms. Cranston, in 410. What are you hoping for? Oh, Charles, great. Uh, let me tell you about Ms. Cranston. Uh, I'm on service for internal medicine. She's a 74-year-old woman admitted a week ago from her nursing home with pneumonia, probably aspiration. Despite antibiotics and chest physiotherapy, she's become worse. She had a sacral decubitus ulcer when she was admitted that is now grade four and causing her a lot of pain. She's restless and pulling out her IVs and, and moaning. She's been to the ICU once when we thought she was going to need to be intubated, but a little BiPAP got her out without an intubation. Her daughter, who never leaves her side, is chasing me all day. I must speak with her at least four times a day, probably more. We're doing everything we can, but maybe you can do something about the pain so she's not moaning so much. I just want her out of the hospital and back to her nursing home without her daughter suing me for torturing her mother. Got it. This sounds like a very challenging case. So there is an example. Dr. Morrison is deeply distressed, although the consult said C for pain. Could you hear the things that are on Dr. Morrison's mind, how frustrated he is? Mostly because there are things he can't make better. And the, the interpersonal and the emotional parts of the case are what are really distressing him. One of the issues that comes up in many teams that are interdisciplinary with doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains, pharmacists, is who should call the managing service. This gets at another issue of etiquette and culture, which is highly variable around the world. I would call this a cultural corollary particularly if you do not know the rules around a particular physician or someone who's called, this corollary can help. And the corollary is the rank 
of the person calling should match or exceed the rank of the person being called. Sometimes this also refers not just to rank, but age. So for example, an attending physician calls an attending physician, a resident calls a resident, a medical student calls a medical student, a nurse calls a nurse, etc. The where this sometimes comes into play is if the managing service is a very senior professor and the person who is taking the case is quite junior and either a junior doctor or maybe a nurse or maybe a social worker. In many places the collaborative nature of the hospital doesn't make this a problem. But sometimes, sometimes it's an issue. I can tell you that of all the services that I have developed over the last 25 years, and in particularly in large academic medical centers, when a particularly difficult or crusty or otherwise unpleasant attending is the one who has initiated the consult, my team knows this cultural corollary, and when they say, Charles, you have got to call Dr. Morrison, I just do it because I know that they know the cultural corollary. I don't question it. If in their judgment, Dr. Morrison needs me to call, I will do it. it has nothing to do with the skill of the team. It is simply culture in some hospitals and in some settings. The concern I hear voiced by palliative care teams is this. Palliative care is interdisciplinary. What's wrong with the nurse calling the attending physician? Well, there's nothing wrong with it, of course. But this is a part of being culturally competent. Just as with patients and families who have different patterns, different expectations, it's not about asking people to be like us and using our culture or the culture we think they should use. It's about us being culturally competent with our customer, the person asking us to see the patient. We are trying to meet their needs as our primary customer in order for us to be able to get to the patient and family and to be asked back for others. This clarifying the request. So did you hear what happened in the call I had with Dr. Morrison? The consult said, pain. But when I said, what are you hoping for? Pain was only a part of it, wasn't it? And some of the behaviors didn't sound pain like pain at all. They sounded like hyperactive delirium and pain medicines would not help. And that issue with the daughter, that has nothing to do with medications. Did you get the sense of what they needed help with? Of course. They want help with managing the whole thing. There wasn't anything particularly off limits, although it wasn't, you know, I didn't really get to that part of the conversation yet. I don't really know whether he wants me to co-manage or whether he just wants me to make recommendations, as some centers do, that consult services never write orders. I really need to talk more.
Dr. Morrison, you know, this really sounds bad. From what I heard you say, an elderly lady from the nursing home with a decube already, with an aspiration pneumonia. And from what you say, it sounds like there could be a hyperactive delirium make this worse. Her prognosis is terrible. Oh, oh, Charles, I know. But I've got a service of 16 people just like her. If you want to try to have that conversation with her daughter, do it. She should have a do not resuscitate order, do not readmit to the hospital order, and she should probably be admitted for hospice care in the nursing home. But I don't have two hours to hold the hand of that neurotic daughter. This sounds like a very challenging case. So we'll see if the daughter gives us an opening to have a conversation like that. Why don't I call you back when we're done to let you know how it went? Does that sound like a plan? Great. So now it's clear. We know what Dr. Morrison is concerned about. I've negotiated that I can talk about things other than just pain and pain management. Did you catch his distress and his willingness to have me and the palliative care team co-manage this patient? Now it's clear. So I can go talk to the nursing staff and the other staff that have likely been caring for her. Social work, chaplaincy, there will be other people on her unit that have made observations about the patient and the daughter. Nursing and social work and chaplaincy will have been critical that are on the unit and observing things, particularly that will have been kept from Dr. Morrison. He won't know the full picture. I reviewed the medical record. I looked at the diagnostic tests. I interviewed the patient and the daughter. I examined her and I offered information and counseling and made suggestions about care management. I'm going to call the referring service before I write in the chart. I negotiated with Dr. Morrison that I would tell him what I found, what I think, and what I recommend, and I will likely commiserate, and will negotiate what is acceptable, and then I'll write the note in the chart to avoid chart wars. Hello, Dr. Morrison. It's Charles Von Gunten with Palliative Care. We saw your patient, Ms. Cranston, and her daughter, Mona. Her daughter is convulsed with guilt that if she were a better daughter, this would never have happened to her mother. I think she is very anxious and enmeshed with her mother. I think she feels guilty. Her mother is in a nursing home at all. I found her quite challenging. I was glad to have the excuse to call you while our social worker is spending some time with her now, trying to help her reframe her situation and what she is doing for her mother. I think you must have been very patient with her during this admission. She thinks you are a fine doctor, but overworked. She thinks you look very young and you should take care of yourself. She agrees that her mother should have a do not resuscitate order and not come back to the hospital and likes the idea of a hospice program seeing her in the nursing home. We can ask case management to get that referral going and get the paperwork in place. 
I agree she's got some pain from that decubitus, and it smells nasty, too. I'm thinking we want to use some topical analgesics and antibiotics and have some wound dressing suggestions. I also think she's got some delirium, and I think we should add some haloperidol to try to glue her thinking back together. That would sure help the daughter. Do you want us to write the orders, or do you want to do it? Oh, Charles, thank you. What a relief. I'm happy to have you write the orders. Will you follow while she's in the hospital? She's just got a couple of more days of antibiotics, and then we'll switch to oral and get her out. Terrific. That's what we'll do. Now we're going to write the note. I'm going to just summarize the case in a few sentences about where she's come from, her current situation. I will include the issues with the daughter, particularly about how guilty she feels, and that likely explains why she is so difficult to everyone around her, because she herself feels that bad. And then I'm going to be very clear, it probably in bullets, about the issues and what I think needs to be done, and I'll write the orders, and I'm going to refer to the emotional distress of the daughter. And I will probably make some comment about how challenging this case is for everyone on the unit, particularly the managing service. So the note will say that, that we were asked for help in managing this 74-year-old woman with dementia, aspiration pneumonia, and sacral decubitus pain that our impression is that the local pain is complicated by delirium and her very distressed guilty daughter. The recommendations are local morphine and lidocaine mixed together in a gel, aggressive haloperidol titration, a do not resuscitate order, and hospice referral after discharge because the daughter will need extensive support as her mother most likely will continue to decline clinically and die within a few weeks or months. I really want to emphasize the emotional part on this and the value of, in your note, commenting on the emotions. I would write about how challenging this case is. The distraught daughter, who is likely highly affected with her mother, that is a very specific psychodynamic term that they are enmeshed. It's as if the two are together and to the daughter with the mother dying it feels like the daughter is dying and she feels terribly guilty and explains the drama around this case. Someone writing in the chart, and it's usually the physician that has permission, makes everyone else feel better about managing the tense relationship and not themselves feeling guilty or worse trying to run away. What are some breaches of etiquette? Those places that either don't know these rules or think they don't need to follow them. The commonest breach is doing more than what is wanted. You will hear, I have certainly heard, from referring clinicians, particularly oncology, cardiology, nephrology, I asked them to help with the pain, and now they're doing psychotherapy and delaying the discharge. 
unless you negotiate ahead of time what you're doing, what the problems are, what you think is wanted, and comparing that and working it out with the managing service, you'll want to stick with their plan. For some, they will want you only to focus on the pain and medication management and not the other. You may think that's not correct. They may disagree with your recommendation, but they are the managing service, not you. The second breach is not getting involved. I called, I, I called palliative care and they left some suggestions for drugs I don't really feel comfortable with and they haven't been back or been in touch. Some of you watching may recognize that. The palliative care team that they may be very busy, they may be frightened of this managing service and unwilling to talk. David Weissman has called this uh, touch football, touch palliative care rather than full engagement palliative care because you're not engaging with the managing service, just being on the periphery. This is another reason you won't ever get asked to come back to see other patients if you don't meet the needs of the managing service. Finally, let's consider the outcomes of certain consultation personalities. I'm sure it's not you, but can you imagine or have you ever seen a militant palliative care advocate? Our job is to take care of the suffering of the patients that are in this hospital, that no one is paying attention to them. They need an advocate, somebody that assures that their pain and symptoms are managed, their emotional, social, and spiritual needs are met, and it's up to us to do it. Guess what the reaction is in most hospitals to militant advocates like that? No one ever calls. They never can grow their service. They don't get to consults because they are so offensive and so implied critical of the people managing the patients. You may have that feeling and you may have that spirit in your team, but the place to talk about it and manage it is in your team meetings. It mustn't seep out. The people who are your customers need to see eager, willing, interested people the second consultation personality is the reverse. The person who is timid, shy, frequently she's a woman, she's worried about being seen as not equal or not up to the standards of others, tends to be very withholding about the things that she thinks or particularly leaning into what she thinks the management should be. And you can imagine the result of this. Well, palliative care doesn't really add very much. Why, why should we call them? Cultivating the right balance, which mostly comes to you are a specialist. You have special expertise that is deeply valued by the consultants and the other people in your medical center. They want you to be engaged and advocating, but appropriately with them, not throwing shade, not telling them that they are wrong, but telling them they have a challenging case and you're delighted to collaborate and help. That will lead to you being a 
deeply valued consultant in your institution. So the main message here is that when you master consultation etiquette, it guarantees you will have fruitful relationships with your referring colleagues. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content, make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.